This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The British Columbia government is taking steps to preserve its environmental landscape. The government has announced its third initiative on this file with the Biodiversity and Ecosystem Health Framework. The framework is meant to deliver on a promise made in 2021 to maintain and enhance biodiversity. To provide more background on the story is Lawrence Gunther. Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Hello, Lawrence. Hi, Dave. So, Lawrence, this is a uh, multi-pronged approach by the B.C. government to shift, uh, shift the way that logging companies are harvesting wood in the province. What are the other two? Dave, we've been talking about this for a few years now, and this is the third time. And and uh, in the, in this fall, they've done three things. Now they've got the biodiversity agreement, which means you know no longer is logging first. Now it's biodiversity and ecosystem health comes first. The second is you got a tripartite agreement, so you've got federal government, provincial government, and First Nations sitting at the table together to make decisions, to share the power decision and management uh, decision process. And the third is. How do we distribute a billion dollars to the stakeholders that are going to be affected by this? If you're not going to allow forestry, if you're going to take back forestry rights, because this is what it comes down to, Dave, they've got the rights, you know, the, the logging companies have the rights and have the leases to log a bunch of land. And now you're saying, you know what, that's not going to count anymore. We're starting over. So what are the implications in regard to Indigenous rights and reconciliation? Dave, this is a huge step towards meeting the demand that the Indigenous people have been saying, you know, we need to be at the table, right? They're claiming, and probably they're right, that, you know, the B.C. government has been leading the way in terms of how trees are are cut down. They've been calling the shots every five to ten years. The forestry minister decides what regions will be harvested, where the harvesting will take place in those regions, and making sure enough trees are left standing so that the forestry can continue to go on and on forever, right? You know, you don't cut down all the trees in a region, but you cut down a, a stand, and then you come back maybe five or ten years later, and you cut down another stand while the other ones grow back. Well, this changes all that, and it puts uh, ecosystem health first. So that that's a big step in the right direction for sure. And it puts First Nations in charge of identifying and helping to identify what regions need to be left alone and where those protected areas need to be established. How is that going to change the forestry processes? It's it's a complete reversal of the paradigm shift, right? Instead of putting logging first and the and the sustainability of the logging industry first, this is putting the health of the ecosystem first. So you have you have to establish what areas you have to look at a region, and then you identify okay these these areas of this region are sensitive. These areas are 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 important. They have old growth trees, which is important to everybody, right? I mean, that's something that always gets the media attention. It gets the attention of the protesters when they start to see these giant, you know, trees that are four, five, six hundred years old come crashing down. People get upset. And and when you see in, in endangered areas that affect animals that are endangered, salmon, bears, you know, whatever, spotted owls, 
people get upset. So they, they want to have these protected areas well established and then identify those areas outside of those protected areas that can be forested. So it's a complete change and uh, putting the system in a, in a totally different process. So what does that mean for any forestry activity inside a protected area? They have to... The main thing is, Dave, is when they establish these protected areas, you the, the forestry industry won't have the power anymore to influence that decision-making process. It used to be a lot of these protected areas were areas of a region that had low forestry value. You know, smaller trees, difficult to get to, steep mountainsides, steep valleys, you know, where trees were, even if they were good-sized trees, they were hard to reach. They had no way to get the machinery in and out. And so they just, all that area that was not profitable to harvest, we said, okay, that's going to be the protected area. And all this area over here where we can harvest uh, efficiently, and profitably and has the most valuable trees will be the areas where we can where forest. Well, that might be changed now, right? Like it might be now that the, the best trees and the best forests and the most beautiful, valuable trees will be protected and the more difficult areas will be open for forestry. You know, the areas where people don't see or it's less valuable, the trees have less value, they're not as big, they're not as old. You know, Dave, sometimes old trees, if they're growing in really you know, not sustainably healthy areas of, of forest, they, they grow old, but they don't grow big. So you can have a three or 400 year old tree that doesn't look three or 400 years old. In other areas, you can have big trees that grow much faster. It all depends on the, uh, the ecosystem. And, and this is all going to be taken into account now as well. What's been the response from First Nations representatives and stakeholders? Well, it's mixed. You know, they're happy to be included at the table for sure. And uh, they think, though, that it's missed the opportunity to identify what's been going on now on the West Coast, the the establishment of Indigenous protected and controlled areas or Indigenous protected and conserved areas. So we've seen these IPCAs um, being announced by different First Nations uh, communities on the West Coast where they've identified a section of their their territory and said, look, this is going to be a protected area that we're going to conserve and protect and watch over. And um, none of those areas have been officially recognized by any level of government. You know, it's basically governments are saying, well, hang on, we're the ones that establish parks. We're the ones that have the rules for establishing, you know, protected areas. We can't just hand that over to First Nations people and let them do it. But this is now so, you know, those IPCAs have not yet been officially identified. It's starting to happen. And they say this could have this these agreements that have been reached by the BC government could have put that process in, into um, into sort of official recognition into the rule books, let's say. So not just like a, a gift, not just a, a sort of a favor, a one off type deal, but actual rules that would allow First Nations community to establish these IPCAs, govern them, manage them, protect them, establish the rules that these IPCAs will be managed under. Because just because you have a protected area doesn't mean all forestry has to stop, right? It's been about 12 months since the federal government made a commitment to protect 30% of land and water by the year 2023. How does that policy connect to this decision in B.C.? 
That's a good question, Dave, because really this is driving the the federal government. They made this commitment. They met their uh, they're on track to meet their 25 percent by the year 2025. But they have to get to 30 percent of all land, 30 percent of all uh, oceans protected by 2030. This agreement uh, is is official recognition that the B.C. government will work towards that and that First Nations communities will work towards that. So now the federal government has these two very important players in British Columbia on side to make this happen. You can't say that's the same with other, a lot of other provinces, right? It's happening in federal, federal crown land, but it's not happening necessarily on provincially controlled territory. So the federal government has control of the oceans and it can it happens there. But the Great Lakes, you need to get the provinces involved with that too, in terms of water and land. You need to get the provinces involved. So BC, they have that. They have that permission now. But there's some that say, you know, just protecting 30% of a of a ecosystem of a region may not be enough that if you really want to protect an ecosystem it may need 70 percent 80 percent of that region to be protected and only 20 or 30 percent could be left to, for development of for mining for forestry for say hydro dams for tourism recreation you know ski resorts things like that and airports so it's it's not you know, it's a good starting point, 30 by 30, but there's many who believe that it's not enough. Lawrence, that's the forestry side of the equation in British Columbia. What's coming up on Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther? Oh, Dave, we have a three-part series, and we just dropped the first part. So it starts with um, Lily talking about how marine mammals communicate underwater, and there's a hearing test that, uh, you know, humans can hear from 20 hertz up to 20,000 hertz, so you can join in on that hearing test and see where you pick up and drop off on that process. <laughs> you can see how whaley you are. You see if you can actually be a whale out there in the ocean. <laughs> well, if you're going to communicate with dolphins, you got to you got to be able to hear yeah, them. you got to speak the language. I don't think there's a, a category for that on Duolingo, uh, dolphin no, lingo. No, no, probably not. Probably not. And, uh, and, then, and then, okay, so the th- three-part series, there's a, a Brent Sturton. He's a 25-year... Um, National Geographic photographer. He's a Canon camera ambassador. He's got more awards for his photography than you can shake a stick at, Dave. Just pages and pages of awards. So we we had a chance to sit down with uh, Brent and talk to him about what's it take to become an environmental conflict photographer, where he sees conflict. He goes into the worst parts of the world three or four times a year and documents these conflicts. Wow. And then he talks in part two, so that's out now, and in part two, which will be coming soon, that's going to be where he talks about his documenting what it's like to be blind in third world parts of the world. And he did a huge worldwide documentary on, on that and, and about blind people in, in developing parts of the world. And in the last part, which will come out in January, he talks about, you know, we talk about, you know, what do you do with those images in your mind? And how do you deal with that from a mental health perspective? How do you keep yourself you know, witnessing all this, you know, as a sighted person and how, you know, I think there's some important lessons there in terms of how do you visualize and how do you turn that visualization off? Sounds like a very interesting three-part series to keep folks company over the holidays. Lawrence, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to you and the family. Talk to you in 2024. 
Thanks, Dave. Good luck to you and have a great time. Uh, be safe in your travels. Yeah, well, I'm traveling uh, not far from you, heading back to the uh, National Capital Region on Saturday. So, uh, so we'll, right we'll on. be breathing the same air. That's Lawrence <laughs> Gunther. He's the uh, host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. You can find Lawrence on Twitter at Lawrence Gunther. In 60 seconds, you can find Elizabeth Moeller in the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minutes. Bay Street benefited from a strong performance by the energy sector yesterday. Toronto's S&P TSX gaining 94 points, closing at 20,623. U.S. markets were also higher on average. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average added 0.86 points to settle at 37,306, while the Nasdaq rose 91 points, up to 14,905. Over to the Asian markets this morning, Japan's Nikkei is up 460 points at 33,219. As for the Hang Seng in Hong Kong, it's down 124 points at 16,505. Statistics Canada is set to release its November Consumer Price Index report this morning, and the Bank of Japan has kept its long-standing easy credit policies unchanged. As for the loonie, it's trading overseas this morning at 74.70 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Thank you very much, Rob. You heard uh, Rob mention the Stats Canada inflation data. It did indeed drop if you missed the top of the show. 3.1% year over year. So a holding steady month over month, but a 3.1% price increase year over year. Okay, that's business. Let's head to the world of weather with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, a little bit chilly and uh, snowy walking into work today in southern Ontario. Yes, it certainly was. Unfortunately, Ontario is getting hit with a pretty big blast of winter this week. That storm we talked about yesterday on the East Coast, they're experiencing powerful winds and potentially historic rains from that major storm. And this storm is going to briefly bring cooler and more typical winter weather to southern Ontario. So for many places today, it might be the coldest day of the month with temperatures plummeting and dipping way below that freezing mark. Um, and that cold air is going to trigger a round of lake effect snow. That strong storm from the U.S. is pulling moisture from the Gulf and is going to head up to the East Coast. That heavy shower in the eastern Ontario, they're expected to ease up this afternoon, though, so good news. And as that storm moves through, colder air from the north will coil in behind it causing snow squalls in southern Ontario. So in that traditional snow belt region, so areas near Lake Huron and Georgian Bay, they could see up to locally over 10 centimeters of snowfall. So a good time to have those shovels and ice picks handy. <laughs> they can handle it. They can handle it. They ten, can ten, handle 10 it. centimeters in Huron County, that's nothing. Well, that that is, that is true, but it's uh, still good to have the shovel on hand. Elizabeth, thank you for this. You mentioned the storm in the Atlantic provinces. I'll have an update on that in the regional news update in about Excellent. 20 minutes. Coming up after the break, there were some ups and downs in 2023 when it came to the experience of people with disabilities. Rabia Hadar will break down some of the highlights and talk about a few of the lowlights too. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.